This is the Downey's DM Podcast. Okay, hello everybody and welcome back to the Down East EM Podcast. Uh, I am here as one of your hosts, Jason Hine, but I have a co-host, the man, Sam. Introduce yourself. Yeah, absolutely. My name is Sam Potter, back again. This time we're going to be talking some more uh, airway stuff. Perfect. So yeah, as we go into this topic, uh, we want to do a little scenario and then introduce the, uh, the article. So you have a patient. The patient is sick as stink. They're tachypnic, tachycardic, borderline hypoxic. They need a tube. You know that. Everyone in the room knows that. You get prepped, you get your team in the right mindset and call out for and push your induction drugs and paralytics. You now have that 45 to 90 seconds of silence where you wait for the meds to work. Should you be doing something else though? Should you be bagging the patient? Will it delay hypoxia? But on the other side of that coin, will they vomit? Will they aspirate? Will it make them worse? These are important questions and questions that are kind of addressed in this article that's gotten a lot of press lately. So what article are we going to be talking about today, Sam? We're going to be talking about um, what's colloquially known as the PREVENT trial and officially titled Bag Mask Ventilation During Tracheal Intubation of Critically Ill Adults. And this was by Jonathan Casey et al. And it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in February of 2019. Perfect. Yeah, so this article, the PREVENT trial, they asked a pretty relevant clinical question. They asked, does positive pressure ventilation with a bag valve mask ventilation strategy during tracheal intubation prevent hypoxemia without increasing the risk for aspiration? What was the study design, though? How'd they go about it? So this was a multi-center, parallel group, unblinded, pragmatic, randomized trial. Uh, This was seven ICUs within the U.S., and they included adult patients aged 18 or older who are getting intubated for just about any reason, um, and they excluded only a few patients. Um, The typical initial exclusion criteria of pregnant patients as well as those patients who are incarcerated, but they also excluded uh, two distinct groups of patients. They said they excluded those who had such immediate need for tracheal intubation that randomization was precluded or if the treating team determined that ventilation between induction and laryngoscopy was either required as a treatment for hypoxemia or severe acidemia or contraindicated because the provider thought that they were at increased risk of aspiration from ongoing emesis, hematemesis, or hemoptysis. So, yeah, that starts out great, right? As you're listening to this, you might be thinking, perfect. You know, 18 years or older in an ICU needing a tube, Probably not that different than the patients I'm seeing in my emergency department. And then your starting exclusion criteria, that's the status quo, you know, pregnant can't do it, prisoners can't do it. But then they start to maybe weed people out a little bit in ways that you might not want. So patients that are at such an immediate need for intubation, that randomization precludes them. What does that really mean? Can we apply that to ER patients? And then, you know, is BVM required or absolutely contraindicated? making those fine line distinctions does make our generalizability a little bit less, um, unfortunately so. But still a good article. We're going to dive into it more. So interventions, what did they do in their groups? They divided up pretty simply. Ventilation could be done with a bag mask device between induction or laryngoscopy or not. And they did a really nice job of describing what that meant. What was BVM ventilation, Sam? Yeah, this was really good of them to include in this detail. They say that um, their BVM technique 
um, consisted of using at least 15 liters per minute of oxygen with a peep valve set between 5 and 10 centimeters of water. That's something to keep in mind. They're using a peep valve in all of these. Um, and they're also using an oropharyngeal airway. They're using a two-handed mask seal with a head tilt and a chin lift maneuver. And they're using a respiratory rate of 10 breaths per minute with the smallest um, volume required to generate a visible chest rise. So that's just a perfect learning point in and of itself right there, right? That's different than the RT with the white knuckles pushing the chin into the you know the sternal notch and delivering full volume breaths that aren't going anywhere. That's not what we're talking about here. They're doing good technique BVM. I have to say it might not just be the RT. It, it might have been the resident as well in oh, my own point. defense. Good point. It's not just the RTs to blame. We all are at, at, you know to be blamed for overventilating or doing a bad technique with some of these cases, but that is how it should be done. All right, and then just to clarify again what the no ventilation group was, the ones that did not have BVM, they did not get breaths between induction and laryngoscopy except in three circumstances. One, if uh, the, there was a failed attempt at laryngoscopy. Two, if the treat, for treatment of severe hypoxemia, which was an oxygen saturation less than 80%, or if at any point the treating clinician determined that it was necessary. So a little asterisk there, hard to quantify, but three different things um, that allowed for BVM if you were in the no ventilation group. So what did they compare? What were they looking at for outcomes here, Sam? So they're comparing this group that gets BVM after induction um, before laryngoscopy and the group that did not get any BVM. So primary outcome that they're looking at is the lowest oxygen saturation that they observed during the interval between giving the induction medication and two minutes after tracheal intubation. So that's the primary uh, outcome is really the, the lowest O2 sat they observed. For that primary outcome, they measured the median lowest O2 set within the BVM group was 96%, and this was compared to 93% in the group that did not receive any BVM. And this was statistically significant. Hmm. Okay. Statistically significant, but we have to put an asterisk there too, right? So who cares? Do you care, Sam, if your patient goes to 96% or goes to 93%? As long as they're not experiencing hypoxemia at a level that's going to cause compromised bradycardia, not a very clinically relevant outcome. Do they have other ones that we care about? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's really this uh, secondary outcome that is the most relevant, I think, to us, which is the incidence of severe hypoxemia. So again, they defined this as an oxygen saturation of less than 80%. Um, and they showed that this occurred at a rate of 10.9% in the group who got BVM compared to 22.8% in the no ventilation group. So this was a pretty big difference showing that the group who got bag valve mask ventilation after induction had significantly lower rates of severe hypoxemia. Interesting, yeah, nearly half basically, right? 11 versus 22 or 23%, huge difference there. They also looked at something else that's kind of relevant to us, you know, the reported rate of aspiration during laryngoscopy. Certainly that's one of the arguments against doing BVM. Now, we are going to say that this was operator-reported aspiration. Take that for what it is. But in the BVM group, they saw that five of their patients, which was 2.5%, had reported aspiration versus no ventilation group had eight, which was 4%. So higher reported rates of aspiration in the no ventilation group. 
What do you think about that, Sam? Yeah, I mean, that result wasn't statistically significant, but it's definitely uh, counterintuitive. I would say we would we definitely think of BVM as inherently increasing the patient's risk of aspiration. So you wonder, are they excluding all of the patients who really are at high risk for aspiration, and how does that affect our interpretation of the results? You know, I think it's a little bit of a lower rate of aspiration than I would have expected. For sure. And so in the end, the authors have their conclusion, and it is here. Amongst patients undergoing tracheal intubation in an ICU setting, those who received BVM with a PEEP valve between induction and laryngoscopy had a higher oxygen saturation and lower rates of severe hypoxemia than those receiving no ventilation. But what do we think about their trial and their conclusion, Sam. What comes to mind for you? Yeah, again, this was a it was a nice large scale trial. It was multi centered. Um, there was randomization, but it wasn't blinded. Um, you know, the clinicians performing intubation are obviously uh, very familiar with whether or not they're providing BVM or not between induction and laryngoscopy. So, you know, hard to say if that skewed their reporting of these adverse events, um, especially with regard to aspiration. You know, we talked a second ago saying that they listed as one of their exclusion criteria um, patients who had any ongoing emesis, hematemesis, or hemoptysis. You know, does that mean it had to be happening right at the time they're pushing the induction drug, or they maybe coughed and spit up a little bit while they were in, in the ICU at some point, you know, who knows how long before they're getting intubated? And that, those are really um, important clarifications or distinctions to make because we really don't want to be giving people BVM if we are going to be drastically in, increasing rates of aspiration. And I'm not sure if we can answer that question definitively in this study. Absolutely. And I mean, it's hard to draw those conclusions there, certainly. The bigger question for me is sort of applicability. You know, are, is this applicable to our ED patients? Rather than, you know, throw the baby with the bathwater in this topic, I think we in the emergency department need to think about, you know, positive pressure ventilation, bag valve mass, and PEEP in particular as a tool and a resource to be used, not exclusively for all patients or exclude for all patients, but selectively. So there's going to be specific types of patients that we're intubating. And Sam, I'm going to put you on the hot seat a little bit about these. What are your thoughts about the use of BVM peri-intubation in each of these? You ready for that? Sure, I like it. All right, so the first one that comes to mind for me is that CHF or with severe pulmonary edema. The person that's just got that foamy, frothy sputum coming in the morning, beelines all over, they rarely need to be intubated now with you know BiPAP and things, but sometimes we have to. What are your thoughts about using BVM in them? Yeah, I think you're right. We're definitely intubating them less and less, it seems. You know, I haven't been doing this for very long, but even from talking with the attendings that I work with, it seems like they, this is a population that used to be getting intubated all the time, and now with you know high-dose nitro, we're definitely doing it less and less. But that being said, there are definitely times where these uh, patients need to be intubated, and um, I think that this is probably a great example of a patient population that would definitely benefit from BVM and, uh, more specifically, some PEEP, between induction and laryngoscopy. You know, anything we can do to keep those alveoli stented open, try and um, increase those pressures and reduce the pulmonary edema, try and get some recruitment is going to be a good thing. Absolutely, totally agree. I think if you think of that as, you know, the, if the patient, once you take off their CPAP or BiPAP, um, how quickly they can plummet, those patients having a few small tidal volume breaths just to keep those alveoli stented, as you said, it's going to do wonders for your uh, oxygen saturation. What about uh, the bronchospastic? What about severe asthma or COPD? Yeah, again, I think that this, you know, we're learning more that these these groups benefit from some degree of 
uh, PEEP, you know, um, we're using BiPAP more um, regularly in these patients, and it seems to help stave off intubation. So I think that you could probably apply that to BVM with PEEP when you are, uh, your hand is forced and you need to intubate these patients. Interestingly, when you when you go back and look at this paper, and they, they do break down some of the indications for intubation, when you look at the group um, that was being intubated for hypercarbic respiratory failure, there were 39 patients in the BVM group and 55 in the non non BVM or no ventilation group. And for me, I think that this is probably, you know, that, that difference in how um, that worked out may have affected the results because I, I think this is a group that would benefit from uh, PEEP. So I wonder if the distribution of respiratory, hypercarbic respiratory failure had been more evenly distributed um, in this trial. I wonder if that would have changed the results at all. But I think my takeaway is that I probably will be using PEEP in these patients as, as much as I can. Interesting. Yeah, I, I like your thought processes there and the kind of breakdown of the data. Just to play devil's advocate, I would actually be pretty cautious in some of these, uh, especially the ones with a really stiff chest, the really bronchospastic young patient. You know, you have to think about your positive pressure, your inspiratory pressure, and the risk for popping a pneumo. Especially, you know, the young, crashing asthmatic, you're going to be ventilating them with some adrenaline. You're white-knuckled, and it's a real concern that you're going to blow a lung on that side. So... You also, within that, have to think as about the rigidity of the chest and the time that is required for them to actually exhale. So with the adrenaline going through you and your team, you're going to be bagging at a rate that you may not want to be, and you're going to be at risk for breath stacking. So I like your thought processes, but it's definitely a double-edged sword in some of these cases. Yeah, I think that's a good point. You know, I'm going to be nervous enough intubating an asthmatic as it is. For sure. Uh, so what about some other ones? Uh, the low GS, GCS, the post-trauma GCS down or overdose with the low GCS. What are your thoughts about BVM in them? Yeah, you know, um, I'm forgetting exactly how they broke down the trauma um, versus non-trauma in this patient, uh, in this trial rather, but this is something that gives me a little bit of pause for using BVM. I tend to think of these these patients, if you're intubating, you know, for that classic GCS of less than eight or the polysubstance overdose, um, you know, these are patients who are probably pretty high risk for aspiration and they may not have any sort of underlying lung pathology and so they're probably more at risk for aspiration and less uh, likely to benefit from the BVM. I would agree with that, and, and I, th- I think that that's a great sort of general framework to think about these cases. If they have good, normal, intact lungs, how quickly are they actually going to desaturate, and what is the aspiration risk for them? Uh, and is you know, the aspiration risk, even if it's small, if it's a devastating consequence to have a white out of their right lower lobe from a major aspiration when they weren't going to desaturate anyway... Are you doing harm, you know? Um, And then we got to talk about septic shock because it was a good majority of their patients. What are your thoughts on intubating the septic shock patient? Yeah, I think that this is kind of a mixed mixed picture. You know, these depending on why they're septic, where the infection is. You know, if they have a bad pneumonia and they're at real risk for immediate desaturation, then I probably would try and do a little BVM. Um, But, you know, if they're perforated gut, um, SBO, you know, sepsis with some sort of intra-abdominal process and they, you don't know when the last time they ate was, then I'm going to be a little bit more hesitant. So hard to break down or, or, or kind of take one definitive stance on septic shock. I think for me, it would be a, a case-by-case kind of basis. 
Fantastic answer. I like your thought processes. I might be a little biased there, but I think you got a good head on your shoulders and you thought about all those cases well. What are your general concluding thoughts as we wrap up on this paper? I mean, it's certainly interesting. I would say that in our emergency department, I don't see a lot of people using BVM um, after induction. We typically do kind of true RSI. We push the drugs. We twiddle our thumbs for 45 seconds, and we try and pass the tube. But I think that after reading this paper and thinking about, you know, this different um, you know, these different subsets of patients, there are groups that I think would really benefit from this. So I'm definitely going to try and work it into my practice a little bit more, especially with that PEEP valve. Perfect. I, I think that's the sort of thought for me in some regards. I'm maybe a little bit more pessimistic or the glass half empty side of this. Having practiced, I think the, the number of patients that we're seeing true hypoxemia in is lower than the ones that they were seeing in their ICU. You know, it was 22% in their no BVM group or in their just pure induction and, and passing the tube. I don't think one in five of my patients is going to be having those kind of low oxygen levels, but it's one of those classic things. Every surgeon thinks they have lower risks of complications from their surgery than everyone else, right? So in my mind, my first question is, is this patient's oxygen going to plummet the second they stop respiring on their own? Do they have a really high risk for hypoxemia? In my, If my answer to that question is no, I leave that be. If my answer is maybe or yes, then my next question is going to be, are they at risk for aspiration? And if they're not, then I would be using gentle BVM. If they are at high risk for aspiration, that's a really sick patient, and you have to be careful how you're going about that. But I would err on the side of trying to pass a gentle and quick tube rather than setting them up for an aspiration event if they already at, are at high risk for hypoxemia in, on their own. Uh, again, whiting out that lower lobe on the right in those patients is going to be such a negative consequence for them that I think I can smoothly intubate them quickly uh, rather than risk the aspiration event. Okay, that's all for the Downey CM podcast for now. Please always remember to put your comments and questions in the comments section. If you like what you hear and want to follow us for more, you can find us on iTunes or through your RSS feed or your favorite podcast app on your smartphone. Until next time. In my mind, my first question is, is this patient's oxygen going to plummet the second they stop respiring on their own? Do they have a really high risk for hypoxemia? In my if my answer to that question is no, I leave that be. If my answer is maybe or yes, then my next question is going to be, are they at risk for aspiration? And if they're not, then I would be using gentle BVM. If they are at high risk for aspiration, that's a really sick patient, and you have to be careful how you're going about that. But I would err on the side of trying to pass a gentle and quick tube rather than setting them up for an aspiration event if they already at, are at high risk for hypoxemia in, on their own. Uh, again, whiting out that lower lobe on the right in those patients is going to be such a negative consequence for them that I think I can smoothly intubate them quickly uh, rather than risk the aspiration event. Okay, that's all for the Downey CM podcast for now. Please always remember to put your comments and questions in the comments section. If you like what you hear and want to follow us for more, you can find us on iTunes or through your RSS feed or your favorite podcast app on your smartphone. Until next time.